Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's great to see you. It's great to be here preaching to you in real life. I can't remember. It's been such a long time since I've done that. I can't even remember when the last time was. Well, we have a great privilege as well um, to be hearing from Psalm 62. And whether you're here in person, in, um, live in person, or listening online, I think this is a wonderful psalm, and I, I pray it will be a great encouragement to all of us. Let me just pray now as we make a start. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the living God. And as we come to your word, we come to a living word. We come to a word that is supremely relevant to our lives today and of immeasurable practical value. And so we pray that as we open up your word now together, that you would give us ears to hear, you would open up our understanding of your word, and Father, please would you give us hearts to believe in it and to put our trust in you. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it wasn't planned this way, um, not in any human terms, but I think the psalm really follows on so nicely in God's provision, God's wonderful provision, from what we've been learning in Luke's gospel. We've been seeing in Luke that our biggest need, what we all really need, is a savior from sin. Our biggest problems are not out there, but in here, in our hearts. The problem of the world is the problem of the human heart. Well, the, the world that we live in, it's a broken world, isn't it? And we're not immune as, Christ, immune as Christians from that brokenness. We see that all around us. We see it in our own lives. We experience breakdowns in relationships, breakdowns in our health, whether that's mental or physical health. We have deep worries about the well-being of our loved ones. To one degree or another, we all face failures and disappointments, struggles at work, struggles at school. And I know in particular for some of our young people that have been going through final exams recently and, or assessments or whatever, they, whatever they're called this year. And they've been facing you know, not only the uncertainty about what to expect in some cases, but that pressure that everything is riding on it, the pressure to perform. Well, the big question that this psalm addresses is who will we ultimately trust to put things right? Because, let's face it, our circumstances, they can shake us, and sometimes they can shake us to the core. Is there someone, is there something that can give us unshakable security? When all is said and done, even when we all come to that final point in our lives, that final crisis, when we face death, can we have unshakable security. And this psalm tells us, yes, we can. It's not in anything or anyone in the world. And David tells us emphatically in the very first verse of this, of this psalm, when all is said and done, he's putting his trust in God alone. Verse 1, for God alone, my soul, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. Well, in the original, that, uh, the first 
six of all the 12 verses in this psalm had that word that's translated there as alone as the first word of those six verses. The word that's translated as alone in verse 1 and only in verse 2. So in the original Hebrew, there was this great emphasis that's somewhat obscured in our English translation on the uniqueness of God as the only ultimate source of security, of confidence, of trust, and the futility of all else. But because we can't see God, our default position is to look for things in the visible, tangible world that we inhabit to put our trust in instead of putting our trust in Him alone. And that makes us prone to doubts. It makes us tempted to do things our way, to think that God doesn't see or He doesn't care. But David gives us huge encouragement in this psalm to put our wholehearted trust in God alone. And he gives us also a great warning against doing anything but. Well, why is David trusting in God alone, and why should we? If we could have the, first, uh, the next slide, please, Benjamin. Well, this psalm tells us, trust in God alone, first of all, because only he can save us from our sin. David not only says in verse 1 that salvation comes from God, but in the very next verse, in verse 2, he says God is his salvation. Well, what is this salvation that David's speaking about? And how does that help us to see how David can have such confidence? Well, first of all, David was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He would have known God's promise to Abraham that through one of his descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And amazingly, in his own lifetime, God had promised to David that one of his sons, a line in his, um, one, of his, uh, one of his line, a son of David, would be king forever over God's people, would be that descendant that was promised to Abraham to be a, a blessing to all the nations. Well, that king that David promised, most amazingly of all, that, that God promised to David, he promised would be God's son. You can see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, and maybe some of you might have been looking at that in your vineyard study on Wednesday. But crucially, most of all, David was aware of his own failure, and yet he could say that God was his salvation. Now, we can't know for sure, but there's good reason to think that this psalm might have been written out of David's experience of the rebellion of his son Absalom. Again, you can read about that in 2 Samuel as well, in, chap in chapters 15 to 18. Well worth a read later. You might remember um, our series um, here at Lionstown in 2 Samuel not so long ago. Well, David was the greatest of kings, but like any king, like all of humanity, he was deeply flawed. And one of his greatest flaws was his failure as a father. And it was that failure that led to Absalom's rebellion and possibly the greatest crisis of David's life. He had to flee from Jerusalem and hide in the wilderness like a refugee in his own kingdom. As his own son, 
plotted his overthrow and his assassination because that's how you changed kings in those days. Well, it must have been an unimaginably desperate and heartbreaking situation for David. And that experience seems to be echoed here in the psalm, whether, this, whether it's referring to that specifically or not. And I think it helps illustrate some of the great truths in the psalm, so we'll come back to those events as we go along. But if we, as we consider David's failure and how he could trust in God's promises all the same, well, I hope that will bring a special comfort to anyone this morning who's feeling weighed down by your own sense of failure. David was acutely aware of his failure, and also he was acutely aware of what he needed most and what God had so wonderfully promised. And that was salvation from his sin and salvation from God's judgment on that sin. So trust in God alone because only he can save us from our sin. And when David describes God as his rock, he means a rock like no rock that this world knows. God is the unassailable, immovable, unchangeable, eternal rock. He keeps his people safe forever through the fiercest storms and the fiercest attacks that can come our way in this world. And trusting God alone means everlasting salvation. If we could have the next slide, please, Benjamin. So trust in God alone, because only he can save us from our sins. And he also turns disaster into victory. That's the wonderful next point that we see in this psalm. So verse 1 is describing a deep inner calm. But it's not the calm before the storm. Because you see, the, the storm is still raging. It's the calm in the midst of the storm. We see that in verses 3 and 4. So verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. Well, for all of us living in suburban houses, here in Barnet, we can relate to David's description of a leaning wall or a tottering fence, can't we? That's the state he's in. He's in a precarious position, and he's not only under attack, but he's under attack by those who are supposed to be on his side. He's in a weakened state, and his enemies are ready to deliver the final blow and thrust him off of the throne. Well, I don't doubt that some of us here this morning are feeling like a tottering fence. And we've all experienced it, or we will experience it in our lives. That, feel, that sense of just being weak in yourself, whether it's suffering in mind, body, or spirit, under attack, or just weighed down by too many cares. And the, attempt, the temptation for all of us is to feel like we're abandoned by God or forget that he's in control, and to look elsewhere and think that we have to deal, or think that we have to deal with the problem ourselves. Well, the silence that verse 1 is describing is a stillness of soul that transcends worldly circumstances. 
But the thing is, it's founded on realism. It's not a withdrawal from the world in quiet meditation. It's not some kind of mystical trance that allows David to shut out all the nastiness of life. And for David, in all who follow in his footsteps, this trust in God, it brings another great practical benefit in the here and now. It does what nothing in this world can do. It transforms that suffering into something good, something of lasting value. As David waits on God, God turns his disaster into victory. As we move on from verses 1 to 4 to the next section, we see this great progression of a deepening faith and trust. A faith and trust that are actually deepened from the experience of adversity. The words of verses 5 and 6, well, they're almost identical to verses 1 to 2, but there are some subtle and really important differences. That statement of faith in verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence, it becomes a reminder in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. David's now preaching to himself. He's reminding himself to trust in God alone and wait on him in quiet confidence. The salvation that God brings in verse 1 becomes David's hope by verse 5. For my hope is from him. And we see from the lines that follow that this is a certain hope. In verse 2, he's been displaced. He's been disrupted by the attack of his enemies. In verse 2, he's still standing in his faith. At the end of verse 2, you see David says, I shall not be greatly shaken. But when he reminds himself of who it is that he's trusting in, that assurance is deepened. It becomes more certain. So we see at the end of verse 6, that confident statement, without any doubt, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. And there's a further progression. We see in verse 7, at the start of verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. So David, he understood that though the, the, all the power of the world could be arrayed against him, that his status of, as king was of God's choosing, and therefore it was secure. His glory, his honor, they rested on God, and that meant that nothing in the world could take it away unless God allowed it. The rock and fortress of verse 2 becomes a mighty rock and a refuge in verse 7. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Well, time and experience, trials of even the worst kind, they can only bring confirmation of his faith. Nothing that the enemy can throw at him can shake it. I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. And this trust in God, well, it's not inactive any more than it is unrealistic. Adversity doesn't make David withdraw. It makes him reach out. His experience of adversity has been transformed 
into an opportunity for encouragement for himself, yes, but it wells up from there into a witness to others. His focus now shifts from his enemies to his friends, his fellow believers, and anyone who will, who will listen to his testimony and put their trust in God alone. So in verse 8, David says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So David puts it positively here in verse 8. Trust in God, in God alone. Trust in him at all times, whatever your circumstances, because he can be utterly relied upon in every situation. He even turns disaster into victory. But in verses 9 to 10, he also puts it negatively with a stark warning against the futility of trusting in anything or anyone else. Can we have the next slide, please? See, David says, yes, trust in God alone. Only he can save us from our sin. He turns disaster in, into victory. Trust in God alone. But don't trust in anything else. Everything else is worth, worse than useless. In these verses, we see all the things and people that we're tempted to put our trust in exposed as meaningless. They're either a delusion or they're a deception. And they'll ultimately lead us to destruction if we put our trust in them. So verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. Low or high, rich or poor, whether you're the cleaner or the CEO, status in the world means nothing. It's all just a delusion. Everything together is weightless. It's nothing. It goes up in, in smoke, like smoke in the balances. Your status in the world can't save you, and neither can having friends in high places. And verse 10 tells us that, well, anything that we gain from this world outside of a right relationship with God, the God who owns and controls all of it, well, that's like extortion or robbery. So verse 10 says, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. But the greatest reason of all, um, sorry, just back up for a minute. Of course, because um, I wanted to say that, of course, God delights to give his people good gifts. But the danger is that we set our hearts on the gift and love the gift more than the giver. And in doing that, we become an affront to the giver. So we need to receive God's gifts with open hands, ready for him to take them away if it's for our ultimate good. As those famous lines of verse, at the end of verse 10 say, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. But the greatest reason of all, the greatest reason for not putting our trust in anyone or anything in this world is that none of it can save, it, save us 
from that greatest problem that we all face. And that comes in the very last line of the psalm. Here's the big punchline that this psalm is leading to. Why not trust in anyone or anything other than God alone? Because, verse 12 says, God is a God of perfect justice. He will render to each one of us according to our works. If we're not not in a right relationship with God through the one means of forgiveness and reconciliation that he has provided, that we're not just living on borrowed time, these verses are saying we're living on stolen time. All that we do is an affront to God, the God who will one day call us all to a final accounting. Anything other than trusting in God alone is worse than useless. So how can we join with King David in having that same unshakable security? The last two verses of the psalm tell us. And that's our next slide, please. We can trust in God alone by clinging to God's word. You see, God's word is what gave David his great assurance. This point is emphasized in the repetition of those first two lines of verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. David had the promises of the Old Testament scriptures, spoken by God and written down by the prophets. And we're in this, we have this awesome privilege, we're in this amazing position of being able to, to have the New Testament and to see how all of God's promises have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God, David tells us, is a message, first of all, of God's power. So verse 11 goes on. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. What an amazing source of assurance that is, to be able to know and trust in Almighty God the all-powerful creator who spoke this world into existence and who upholds it by his mighty words, moment by moment. Well, there's an illustration, I think, can help us to see this from from history, from the history of World War II. In December 1941, the United Kingdom was isolated and in a deadly struggle against probably the greatest tyranny that this world has ever known. And then there was news of Japan's unprovoked surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And this might seem strange, but when Winston Churchill heard that news, it gave him a deep sense of peace and security. Well, why is that? This is how he put it in his own words. At this very moment, I knew that the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So we had won after all. Notice the the prophetic past tense. He speaks of it as something in the past, it was so certain. We had won after all, and he goes on. How long the war would last and in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. 
being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as David tells us here in this verse, all power belongs to God. And that means that every night, whatever our circumstances are, we can go to bed and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. But there's more. Not only does all power belong to God, but verse 12 continues, and to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. A steadfast love, God's amazing steadfast love, his mercy, not treating us as our sins deserve, and his grace, pouring out on us his favor and his love that we don't deserve. And of course, that's supremely shown in the death of Jesus on the cross. God's Son taking the punishment that his people deserve. So God's word is the ultimate message of good news, the ultimate message of hope and security. It's a message of God's supreme power, of his supreme love. And finally, in the midst of all the attacks that a hostile world can throw at us, God's word is a message of perfect justice. The way it's written, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. It just ties together God's steadfast love and his justice. But to you belongs steadfast love, for, because, you will render to a man according to his work. This closing verse, this punchline, that God will render to a man according to his work. Well, if you think about, again, about the events of Absalom's rebellion. In his case, his rebellion led to his death, hanging on a tree, and utter defeat. He paid the price for rejecting King David. And the wonder of God's grace is that we've all rejected God's ultimate king, Jesus. And for all who put their trust in him, God has laid on him the punishment that we deserve. He's rendered to Jesus according to our works and counted to us rebel sinners Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect trust in God. And God knows that we constantly fail, but Jesus didn't. That's the great point that we were learning last week from Luke, wasn't it? And so we keep coming back to him. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 6, verse 29, this is the work of God, to believe on him whom he has sent. So put your trust in God, God alone, and nothing else, and cling to his mighty word. He delights to work in us as we come to him every day and come to his word every day, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what we're feeling, being reminded of who God is, of all that he has done, all that he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Well, if you've strayed from this rock, then turn back without delay, knowing that he has saved you forever and nothing else can. And keep serving him. Keep serving him by encouraging and witnessing to others. And say with David, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him 
God is a refuge for us. And finally, I just wanted to say a word to anyone here this morning who wouldn't, or listening in this morning, who wouldn't call yourself a Christian if you've not yet put your trust in God. Could I urge you to heed the warning that we have here in this psalm? Consider who or what it is that you're ultimately trusting in. Because we all need saving from that ultimate crisis that will come to every one of us when we will face God and have to give an accounting to him for how we've lived our lives. So keep looking into the Bible. Keep coming back on Sunday mornings or speak to someone here, someone you know at Lionsdown, about other ways that you can do that. Let me just finish now with a prayer. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have unshakable security. We can have this unshakable foundation to build our lives on by trusting in you and you alone. Thank you, Father, for the salvation that you have won. Thank you for that eternal salvation and that certain hope that your people have. Father, you know our weaknesses, you know our failings, but you are a God of grace. And so we pray to you now that you would keep us coming to your word day by day and keep us living it out, keep us sharing it with others as we put our trust in you alone. We pray that through us, others would be called to do the same and that you would be glorified. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.